welcome to the Vineyard Boise Sunday Message Podcast. You can join us live on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. on Facebook, YouTube, and vineyardboise.org slash live. Subscribe to our message podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. And if you'd like to support Vineyard Boise, you can give online at vineyardboise.org slash give. Today's message is brought to you by Pastor Trevor Estes. Enjoy. We are currently, we're studying through the gospel of Mark. Uh, We decided at the beginning of this year that we wanted to give our attention to Jesus. We believe that all of scripture is God-breathed, that all of it's profitable. And, and um, And we believe that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the stories about Jesus are the most important for us to stay anchored in and rooted in because this is, this is the invisible God made visible in the person of Jesus Christ. And so, um, and so we want to anchor into that story. So we're, we've been there. Uh, today, we're, we're nearing the end of the book of Mark and we're going to wrap that up. It's going to take us right up to Christmas with the resurrection story. And I'm kind of excited about that. Um, today, we're going to start in a place that you might not expect uh, because we're not going to start in Jerusalem or in the temple specifically, which is where the current set of stories are set. We're actually going to start in Disneyland, right? That's what you came for, right? Disneyland. How many of you have been to uh, Disneyland or Disney World? Go ahead and raise your hand. Pretty good percentage of the audience. Uh, if you're online, you can respond to this as well. Um, let's just do a little bit of interaction here. What is your, um, what is your favorite uh, attraction at Disneyland or your favorite thing to do when you're there? Maybe it's something you eat. Go ahead and shout it out. Or... Jungle, Cruise. Jungle Cruise. Is that Skipper Freddy? That's Skipper Freddy. Nice. We got churros. What else? What was it? The light parade. Online, we've got somebody saying churros. What else? Yeah, churros are awesome. What is it? Space Mountain. Space Mountain rules. What else? What is it? Big Thunder Mountain. Yes. Online, we've got the Tiki Room. Pineapple Dole Whip. That's what I'm talking about. A little Tiki Room action. Anybody else? we got... Star Tours, we got two more on campus and two more online. Fireworks? Parade? Captain EO. <laughs> Welcome to the 80s. <laughs> I used to do a pretty good Captain EO imitation. I'm not going to do it right now, though. It's inappropriate for a Sunday. Um, all right, anybody else online? I'll give you one more online one. Anybody else? Going once. Blue Bayou and the Roller Coasters. Amen. Blue Bayou. That was that ham sandwich it's dipped. That's pretty good. Monte Cristo. All right. Here's why I'm asking you this. Uh, several years ago, I was planning a trip to Disneyland. Um, our oldest daughter was going to be graduating high school, and we wanted to do something special for her that year. I, I, want, I wanted to do something special for our whole family. And so I began planning a trip to Disneyland. Uh, she was graduating in 2020, so we were going to do it in the fall of 2019. And, uh, and as part of that, as getting ready for that trip, I began listening to a Disneyland podcast. And the reason for that was that I, I, just, I just wanted to learn tips and tricks. I wanted to learn the, you know, the best way to navigate the park. I'm a strategic type person and a detail person, so I wanted to have it all kind of planned out. Uh, I wanted to figure out where is the best place to stay that was affordable and cheap and close and all that type of stuff. So I began listening to this podcast. And on one of the episodes, they interviewed a woman named Barbara. And Barbara had been, uh, she'd gone to work at Disneyland in the 80s uh, when she was a teenager. And on this podcast that they were interviewing her, she was telling her story about one of the jobs that she'd had. One of her jobs is that she was a a Disneyland tour guide. And back in the 80s, it was not, I don't think tours happened as much as they did back then. Back then, there was, uh, her, her job was to do both private tours that were, um, that were personal type tours. They were, uh, you know, they were something that somebody would, would hire her for. They were quite expensive and quite exclusive. And then she also did public tours as well. And um, so she was telling about a private tour she did. And this was uh, her and some other cast members, cast members, what they call Disneyland employees. Her and some other cast members were taking the son of the Sultan of Brunei uh, around Disneyland. And they spent the whole day taking him around. Now, if you don't know anything about Brunei, Brunei is like the second wealthiest nation in Southeast Asia, right after Singapore. 
Uh, it's a place that's very wealthy, lots of, uh, lots of oil, fossil fuels there. And so this, this guy's fabulously wealthy. And so they're taking the son of the sultan and, and his latest wife. His other wives had stayed home, um, but he was honeymooning with his new wife. And so they took him around the park. And uh, at the end of the day, the last thing that he's, he and his, his bride said they wanted to do is they wanted to go on a shopping trip down Main Street, Disneyland. And so uh, the, the cast members, they took him down this, this, uh, you know, this shopping spree. And back at the time, it, you know, there was Main Street, which had, which had like clothing and merchandise and you know, candy and all that type of stuff. Back then there was also like a fancy jewelry store. And so they would stop there and here's what would happen is the, the son of the sultan and his wife would walk up and they would look at something and the, the, you know, whoever was working the counter would show it to them and then they would either nod yes or shake their head no and then move on to the next thing. And if they nodded yes, then as soon as they moved on, one of their, their entourage would slide up behind them with, a, with literally like a briefcase that was handcuffed to their wrist and would open it up. It was full of $100 bills. Full of, I mean, this is like, she said, this was like out of a movie. Like this, this suitcase, this, this briefcase was full of cash and they would slap as many hundreds as they needed to in order to cover the cost and then run after the sultan without waiting for change, okay? This made quite an impression on Barbara and her fellow castmates. And so if they, they finish the shopping trip, they go out to the parking lot and there's like limousines waiting for the whole entourage. And as they wave goodbye, one of the aides runs up, the, the aides to the son of the sultan, runs up and says, um, his highness wants you to have this and gives each of the cast members four $100 bills. Now, that's a, that would be a, a very generous tip today. Uh, in the 80s, that's like, that's like a million dollars, I think, right? <laughs> like you, could, you could buy a lot of parachute pants with $400. So, so she tells us, and, and, and by the way, cast members aren't allowed to take tips. And so they, they said, well, we can't. And they said, no, the, the sultan, his highness will be insulted. So they ended up having to go to, uh, to find a supervisor and say, this is our dilemma. He wants to give us this money and, and we'll insult him if we don't take it. And so they said, okay, you can take it. Don't insult him. All right. So she tells a story. Barbara tells a story and she says, that was the, the biggest tip I ever received. And she said, now let me tell you about the smallest tip. She said, I was doing a public tour and there was this little old grandmother from England who was on the tour. And she told me that she had been saving her entire life for this trip, that this was the trip of a lifetime. It was the, it was the once in a lifetime thing for her. She, she'd never been, and she was just mesmerized with the park. And so she did the tour and she was so taken by the wonders of Disneyland. And at the end of it, she comes to Barbara and she, said, and she just profusely thanks her for giving her a tour of the wonders of Disneyland. And with a tear in her eyes, she says, I want you to have this. And she holds out her hand. And Barbara puts out her hand and this little grandmother from England puts a quarter in her hand. And she said, I looked at that quarter and she said, I was a, I was, even as a teenager, I knew I'm supposed to take this tip. This is different. This is, not, this is not against Disneyland policy for me to take this. And so she takes it and she thanks her. And she said, and here's what she said in the podcast. I mean, I, I actually put it in quotes here. She said, that quarter meant more to me than the $400 because I understood that it was what she had. That was the smallest tip I ever got, but it meant so much more. It was an incredible tip. I want you to hold on to that story. And I think that gives us a, a framework and just a modern framework for what we're gonna experience today in the life of Jesus. As we pick up in Mark chapter 12, Jesus is, uh, as we said, uh, this is the nearing the end of Jesus' earthly ministry. Uh, we're going to be in 12 verses 41 to 44. And uh, I've titled this message, Follow Me by Giving All That You Have. Follow me by giving all that you have. And as we resume, Jesus is, he's currently in Jerusalem. This is the twofold week. It's Passover week and Passion week. Okay, Passover week means that it's the most celebrated holiday in all of Israel and specifically in Jerusalem. It means that faithful pilgrims from throughout the Roman Empire, throughout the known world, actually, are all coming to Jerusalem to observe and celebrate Passover. They want to do it in Jerusalem at the temple. 
And so this is the most uh, crowded, public, uh, religious, and celebratory time of the whole year in Israel. But it's also Jesus' Passion Week. And here, so sometimes we call it Passion Week, sometimes we call it Holy Week. Here's what that means. It means it's the final week of Jesus' earthly life, and it will culminate in his, his crucifixion on Friday, which Jesus knows is coming. It wasn't surprised by that. So Jesus knows that, on, that this is moving towards his crucifixion. On Sunday, he'll be resurrected. That's all part of Passion Week. But the part when today is Tuesday. This is Tuesday. So it's three days before his crucifixion. And um, let me just, let's take a minute to review uh, what we know about so far. Um, first of all, on Sunday, this is the passage we looked at last week. Sunday, Jesus was welcomed into Jerusalem by the crowds. That evening, he entered the temple complex and he observed what all was happening. We said last week that this was kind of his recon trip. He came in on Palm Sunday and walked into the temple and just surveyed what was happening. Just observed, didn't react, didn't respond, just observed. He came back the following morning. He's, he, during Passion Week, he was spending the night in Bethany with some of his closest friends uh, out, out just outside the city. And then during the day, he would come into the city. So Monday, he comes back into the city. Jesus cursed a fruitless fig tree. Fruitless fig, that's kind of challenge to say. Fruitless fig tree, and then he disrupted the temple money changers and the sellers of animals. If you want to know more about that, if you weren't here last week, check out that message, um, how those things are connected. Cursing the, fig, the fruitless fig tree and then disrupting the temple. Then on Tuesday, Jesus returns again to the temple, and this time the religious leaders are challenging him about his authority. They're a little bothered by what happened yesterday. And so by the time he shows up on, on Tuesday, they're saying, who do you think you are? What gives you the right? And he begins to have a dialogue with him. This day, this day is then full of, of conflict, of interrogations, of questioning. We're going to actually circle back. We're not going to, we actually are, are skipping over a part that we're going to circle back to next week. Um, but let me just tell you a little bit of what happened. Uh, Jesus, when they began to question him, told them a parable that they perceived. This is what the text says, that it, he, they perceived that it was about them, that it was against them. And they didn't like that. So they begin taking their turns. And this is the religious leaders there in the temple. They begin taking their terms, various groupings, each taking their shot at challenging Jesus trying to trap him, trying to get him to say the wrong thing, trying to trip him up. And so, uh, and we'll see this next week. So first there was a group, the Pharisees and the Herodians came together, which by the way, Pharisees and Herodians never did anything together. That's some sort of bizarre, unholy alliance, mashup. But they agree they don't like Jesus. So first the Pharisees and Herodians come and they try and trip him up. After then it's the turn of the Sadducees. They come up. And then after them, it's the scribes. And finally, and so there's, there's this day, there's just this conflict, tension, uh, con constant controversy. Finally, there's a lull in the conversation and Jesus kind of takes a pause for a breather. And that's where we're picking up. And I, I, I just, as I was studying the story this week, I thought, you know, um, in this day that's been pretty bleak for Jesus, in actually a week that at this point, you know, it ends really well. Sunday is resurrection. That's but the middle of it, it's, it's pretty bleak. But there's this little flower, this little moment of beauty, this little reprieval that refreshes Jesus' heart. I, I pictured it like this. You've probably seen photos like this of the little flower sticking up through the asphalt. This moment that we're in, it's just four verses today. It's, it's a little flower in the midst of the asphalt. Set in the, in the conflict and the drama of the temple, and in between the cross that Jesus knows is looming in his immediate future comes this beautiful intermission. Let's read Mark 12, 41. And he sat down opposite the treasury and he watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums. Okay, so this is most likely playing out in the court of women. We looked at the kind of a diagram of the temple last week. The court of women was a specific area outside of the, the, um, the, the temple proper. And it was a place where both men and women that were Jewish could come. And so they had, there was 13 uh, offering boxes, kind of like we've got offering boxes across the middle of the room. There was 13 offering boxes strategically placed around the court of women. And here's the thing, they were, they were called shofar chests which means they were shaped like trumpets and they were made out of metal. So when an offering was placed in or dropped in, 
one of these shofar boxes, it was not only visible what somebody was doing, it was audible. That's why, that's why people could tell that some people were putting in large offerings. So here's religious pilgrims. Again, it's passion or, or uh, Passover week. Religious pilgrims have come from out the known world. They've brought their annual temple tax. They've brought their tithe. They've brought their offering. And they've come from great distance. And, and they've, they've come with something to place in the temple treasury in, in, in the offering box. And they're not, here's what they're not doing. They're not swiping their debit card. Uh, they're not writing a check that no one knows what's, what the amount is. They're not, you know, using their Venmo app. They're dropping coins, and in some cases, sacks of coins. And so every time, I just want you to imagine the sights and the sounds throughout this courtyard with 13 of these metal boxes, pilgrims coming from all over the known world, all faithful people who are coming to give their offering. I suspect that some of them were, were making a show of just how much they were giving, making sure that everyone could see just how much they were giving. In the paragraph right before this that we didn't read today, we're going to read it next week. The paragraph right before this, Jesus warns about scribes. He says, beware of the scribes. And then he goes on to detail the types of things that they like to do so that people see them as religious people. Things that they do for appearances, for the, for, for the sake of others, that doesn't come from a genuine heart. I suspect that some of the people that are giving are, are making sure that people are hearing their offering, that they're seeing it. Jesus just quietly watches it. Verse 42, and a poor widow came and she put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. <laughs> Into the scene of wealthy people giving impressive offerings with loud clangings each time an offering was deposited comes this poor widow who drops in two small coins, so insignificant that they might not even be heard. I suspect they weren't heard in, the, in just the din of, of noise that was there in that court. Just two little coins, plink, plink. These would have been Roman lepta, would be the name of this coin. It was the lightest and the least valuable coin in circulation. Put together, two, two lepta put together, would be worth about 164th of a denarius. Okay, if, you're, if you think about denarius, denarius appears in the gospels quite a bit. A denarius was, was what? It was a day's wage. It was, it, it was a laborer going out in the field and working for a full day would get paid one denarius. And what she just put in was worth 164th of a denarius. She actually, she really couldn't, and this is the, the, again, it's the lightest and the smallest coin in, in circulation. She really couldn't have given any less significant of an offering unless she just put in one lepta. And she put in two. But it makes an impression on Jesus that far outsizes the monetary value. Let's go to verse 43. He called his disciples to him and he said to them, truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, has put in everything that she had, all that she had to live on. I just want you to hear what he said. She, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. Jesus, just, he's just sitting there observing this whole thing playing out, just watching this scene. He just has a reprieval. But he sees this, this little widow give this, and he's stunned by it. He sits up, he motions the disciples over. I like to think that, that he said this in kind of a, a reverent and hushed tone. Guys, guys, come here. Did you see what she just did? Because he doesn't want to embarrass her. He doesn't want to call attention to her. But he wants them to get it. And so he says, she, she just put in all that she had. Everybody else is giving out of their margins. He says, he tells them that in his economy, she just made the most significant offering of all. Everyone's giving out of their margins, out of their excess. They, again, now these are travelers who've come from around the known world. They've, they've got the resources to have traveled there. So this is probably a pretty well-off group. And, and it's, not that, it's not a bad thing that they're giving it's just that they're giving out of their excess to where it doesn't really cost them that much. What she did cost her. To quote N.T. Wright, he said, 
Her sacrifice, though small, was total. I thought that was just such a beautiful summary. Her sacrifice, though small, was total. As Jesus was assessing this, he, he wasn't valuing the, the quantity. He was valuing the heart behind it. See, the other offerings cost relatively little and may have even been done for show, for public admiration and for praise. Hers was done for love, to declare her love and her trust in a very concrete way. So I, I, thought, I asked this question this week, why did this have such an impact on Jesus? Why in this moment where he is facing his own crucifixion. Like there's a, there's a lot that would be on his mind and heart right now. And he's been in conflict all day with religious leaders. And he just has this moment where he sees this. Why did it have such an impact on him? I'd suggest two things. There's, there's, I'm sure there's others, but two things. One is it was, a, it was an act of love, trust, and faith-filled worship. I think this, this humble widow, she has no safety net other than trusting that God will take care of her. She, she does not have credit cards. She doesn't have a home equity line of credit that she can lean into. Like she has, this is all she has. And she's, she just kind of pushes those chips into the middle and says, I'm all in for Jesus. I'm all, I'm all in to trust God with my life. She's entrusting herself to God's care and she's honoring him with what she has. This is, again, this is Passover. And she doesn't want to not give something. So she gives what she has, and she, in fact, gives everything she has. In the vineyard, we have a, a phrase that, that faith is spelled R-I-S-K. And if that's, in fact, true, if faith requires risk, this, this woman has risked everything, and she's held back nothing. I want you to realize that. Why does Jesus, why is he so captured by her? Because she gave everything, and she withheld nothing. Why did this have such an impact on Jesus? Secondly, because it was a clear reflection of his own image and nature. She was making the invisible God visible. You know, we, we, we have a phrase around here. A lot of times we end the morning and, and the last thing that, that I say before, you know, we, the morning's closed is, I say, go out and make the invisible God visible. And it comes from the, the book of John where, where we're told that no one has ever seen God the Father, but Jesus, his son, has come and made him known. He's made him visible to us. Jesus has done that, and we're called to, to carry on what he's done. We're called to be formed in God's image so that, so that what we carry into the world is, is reflective of who he is. And that's what she was doing in that moment. She was reflecting his nature. It wasn't just that she did something extraordinary. is that in her unique way, she reflected God's image. I, that connection actually happened for me several months ago in terms of what she was doing and the fact that she was carrying God's image faithfully in her life. Uh, that connection was made for me several months ago when um, Andrea's mother, my mother-in-law, passed away. And uh, Andrea's mother, her name was Loretta. And as we were navigating the, the grief and the loss of, of just, you know, walking through all of that, um, there, you know, there's so many decisions that have to be made when somebody passes away. And we were navigating that. And we were working with a funeral home director from, from Cloverdale. And here I'm a pastor who's officiated and, and walked with so many families through funerals and memorial services and celebration of life services. And she suggested something to us that I, have never, I had never done and I'd never suggested to anybody else. I will now because it was so powerful. She encouraged us to, to write a letter to the person we were saying goodbye to. We we're saying goodbye for now. Loretta was a Christian. We know we had absolute confidence that she's with Jesus, that this wasn't goodbye forever. It was goodbye for now. But she encouraged us to write a letter to her and to, to say the things that we needed to say. And so um, I, found, I sat down to reflect on Loretta's life and what I wanted and what I needed to say to her. And one of the things that immediately came to my mind and heart was her surprising generosity. In fact, I, I told her in my letter that she reminded me of this widow in Mark chapter 12, who had so captured Jesus' heart. Loretta was effectively a widow herself. Um, she, she did not have a, a choice in her divorce, um, and, and she spent uh, the, the rest of her life following a, a divorce in, I believe, in the 80s um, on disability, uh, on Social Security. So she had a very fixed income, didn't have a, a whole lot of, uh, of monetary means. 
And yet she was an image bearer of God who reflected his generosity so faithfully and so clearly. Loretta lived a, a, a pretty simple life. And when she had satisfied her, her bills, she would have a little bit of margin left over in her fixed income. And instead of spending it on just, just her needs, um, she saved it. She saved so much of it. And, and yet it wasn't because she was squirreling it away for some sort of you know, you know, emergency fund or something like that. She wasn't uh, saving it against an unknown and unpredictable future. She was saving it in order to give it. And she was so incredibly generous. She loved giving to others. She, a few examples, she, she paid for our daughter's uh, piano lessons. She initiated our, our youngest daughter taking piano and then paid for that lesson for years. This, this widow on a fixed income was paying for a piano. She, she helped send our family to Disneyland. She contributed to our trip. A trip. I don't know that she ever got to go there herself and yet she wanted to contribute to us going. She gave, and probably the, the last extremely generous thing that I, I know that she did is during COVID, she went to see her hairdresser who um, she had not seen for quite a while and, and who was struggling with the finances of everything being closed down. This is early on in 2020. She went to her hairdresser and she gave her an incredibly generous tip. A tip that I know her hairdresser and she came to me and she was with tears said, your mother-in-law was so kind to me. Jesus was inspired by the generosity of this, this widow. I've been inspired by Loretta's generosity. And when we see that, when we recognize that this person is doing that, we need to look beyond just, we need to appreciate what they're doing and also recognize that matters to us because that's who our God is. Our God is extravagantly generous, surprisingly generous. Here's what I wrote to Loretta. I said, Loretta, I believe that each of us are made in God's image. And that though none of us carry his image completely, we do it each uniquely. We have our own unique share of God's nature. We carry his image in the world in our own special way. For you, one thing that stands out is how you showed his surprising generosity. You do remind me of that lady whose surprising generosity touched Jesus' heart in Mark chapter 12. I want to be inspired. These stories, the, 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 the little old grandmother in Disneyland, this lady that Jesus encountered in the temple, Loretta's life of, of just generosity. I want to be inspired by that. And I want to say, God, would you continue to do that in me? That's who you are. I want to be more like that. We're going to talk about that a, a, a little bit more, but before we do that, I want, I want to pause and acknowledge that, um, you know, we're, we're in a season as, as a local church, as a local spiritual family, as, uh, as a city, as a nation, as a world, where um, there's been a lot of loss, and specifically loss of life. A lot of people that, you know, even as we're moving into the holiday season, a lot of people that are going to be missing at our tables because we're, we're grieving those who've been lost. Um, want to invite you to something. We're do, going to be having a lament service in light of that. Uh, it's coming up. It's two weeks from yesterday. It's on Saturday the 20th. Uh, it's going to be right here. It's going to be at 6 p.m. in the sanctuary. And uh, here's what it is. It's an opportunity to join together in acknowledging loss and then inviting God into that pain and the grief. Sometimes this is, as, as Christians, we're not always good about lamenting, about, about owning our grief and then inviting God into it. The Psalms are full of it. The Psalms are full of people proclaiming their grief, crying out to God and then inviting him into it and saying, and I love you and I trust you. And that's what this lament service is gonna be about. Um, and so I'll just ask you like, who is missing at the table? And maybe there's somebody in your own life that, that you um, have, have lost in the, in the recent past and that you need to, to be able to, to come together and make some space to, to lament and to invite God into that place. Uh, I want to invite you to come. But I also want to ask you to consider that there may be other people that you're close to that you know they've lost someone. And that, that if you invited them to come and you came with them, that they would come and, and maybe receive some, just some healing and some affirmation through that. I want to encourage you to consider inviting somebody for it. We have a, a team that's working. They're, they're being very prayerful and thoughtful about doing this, doing it in a way that really gives people a chance to respond. 
And so, um, you know, we're, t- we're told in Scripture to grieve with those who grieve. Um, and, and I think this is an opportunity for us to do that as a church in a way that, that our culture doesn't always know how to do. And so, um, so that's coming up again. It's on the 20th. Uh, we do have some invite cards that if, um, if you would like to take one of these cards, either as a reminder for yourself or to invite somebody to, to come. And again, I would encourage you, if you invite somebody who's not a part of our church family, invite them to come and, and ask, say that you'll come with them if they would like to come. Because it's, it's an awkward thing to show up at a place that you don't know with people you don't know. So, so I encourage you to consider coming with them. Uh, there'll be invite cards. You can pick them up. You can ask the ushers for them as you leave. We're not gonna, we don't have enough to give one to every single person, but if you ask for them, the ushers will have them and, and we'll give them to you, okay? So let's shift into a little bit of application. Um, I've just got two application points for us this morning. First of all, so giving all. This, this woman gave all that she had, everything she had to live on, according to Jesus. The question is this, in what ways can you respond with greater abandon and trust to God? Less self-protective and more trustingly generous. I think it's striking that this woman, what she did was a statement of not just generosity, but of trust. Because she was, she was putting it all in. She's saying, God, I'm, I'm trusting you to care for me. How can you worship him through, your, through the, what you give of your time, your finances, your possessions, your abilities? I do want you to notice that I took the offering this morning at our normal time. I didn't wait to the end and take it now, which was, I'll be honest, it was a little bit tempting and also probably manipulative. <laughs> so uh, this is not about trying to gather a big offering right now. It's about being a people whose lives reflect the surprising generosity of our Heavenly Father. And I want to encourage you to consider that, not just with your finances, but with your whole life, to, to be all in with all that you are, all that you have. Because sometimes what we, we, you may not have a lot of material resources and you still have things that you can be generous with. Your time, your, your abilities, just to be present with people, to be physically present and, and to engage with people is an act of generosity. Whenever we're presented with an opportunity to give of ourselves, that is also an opportunity to worship God by doing what he would do if he were us. That's one of the ways we've defined discipleship is that discipleship is learning how to live our lives like Jesus would if he were us. And when it comes an opportunity to give, and a lot of times, I'll speak for myself, I'll get self-protective. I'll think, uh, if I do that, then I won't have enough for me. That could be of my time. It could be of my my resources. It could be of any number of things, I guess, but I can get self-protective. And then I stop and think about Jesus who was giving up his whole life on the cross. And I think, I don't think Jesus would live in such a self-protective way. It's a chance to worship. When I find myself at those opportunities, here's what I like to do. I like to, to say, God, I want to grow in reflecting your, your nature, your surprising generosity. So I'm going to give, but would you, in this act of obedience of just giving of myself or my time, whatever it is, would you shape me to be more like you? So that what comes out of me automatically, so that, so that what comes out of me when I get squeezed is less resistant and self-protective and more generous. That's how God forms us. That's how he forms his image in us. I find that we need to pay attention to avoiding obligation. Sometimes when we're presented with an opportunity, we can automatically think, that's not my responsibility. I didn't create that. And yet here we have Jesus who is on his way to the cross to fix a situation that he didn't create. But he's going to fix it because he can. Sometimes we're given an opportunity and we can respond because we can. I think that's a great application. If you're a follower of Jesus, if you are uh, wanting to grow in being who he's made you to be in carrying his image faithfully in the world, again, we each have a unique, a unique way that we carry God's image. We're unique image bearers. And if you want to grow in carrying that, then, then those are applications. But I want to go to something that I think is far more important than just telling Christians you should give more. And it's this. This passage is first and foremost not about what we should do, what we should be and what we should do, 
It's about who Jesus is and what he's done. Okay, why was Jesus so captivated by this? In three days from this, again, this happened on Tuesday. On Friday, Jesus will offer up his life. His life, be very clear, his life was not taken from him. Jesus was not a martyr or a victim. He offered up his life and he could have taken it back. He's going to offer up his life. What did he say about her? He said, she, she put in everything she has, everything that she had to live on. That's what, that's what Jesus is going to do. He's going to give himself everything that he has to live on. His, his very life he's offering up for the sake of others. Jesus, as our Messiah, you know, the, the, the Hebrew people, they've been waiting for generations for, a, for the Christ, for the anointed one who would be the Messiah who would come and deliver them. Jesus came as that Messiah, but, and he, he did some important things. We've, we've saw, seen throughout the book of Mark that he taught, that he performed miracles that were signs to, to point to who he was, but he didn't stop with the teaching and the signs. His ministry was completed at the cross when he gave his life for us. And if all we needed was for somebody to come and teach us about God or to heal us with, with physical healing or spiritual healing, if that's all we needed, then he could have done that and stopped there. But his ministry was actually completed when he offered up his life on the cross. And that's a gift that, that we get to respond to in faith. Titus says that, that Jesus gave his life to bring salvation for all people. And so it is available to all and it's appropriated individually. Salvation, responding to God and giving him our all so that we can have his all. That's appropriated individually. When he so generously offered up his life in exchange, what he was doing was paying the penalty of our death. And I, I don't pretend to understand all of the spiritual dynamics of creation and the fall and what that put in motion and how redemption works at the cross and the resurrection. But here's what we know. Jesus died because he had to. That was the only way to rescue us, to take our death upon himself as a substitute, as an exchange. But not only did he, he die for us, he also rose for us. He offers resurrection life, eternal life. That's not only a quantity of life, it's a quality of life that begins the moment that we say yes to him. And it begins rippling out of our, our lives as he, he places his spirit inside of us and he begins to transform us to be more like him. And he offers us eternal life. Paul puts it like this when he writes to the Corinthian church. 2 Corinthians 8, chapter 9. You know the generous grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Though he was rich, Yet for your sakes, he became poor so that by his poverty, he could make you rich. Paul's describing how Jesus too gave all that he had, all that he had to live on his very life. Here's the human condition. Our spiritual poverty, our spiritual poverty, regardless of our material possessions, is that we are all born sinners. We're all born separated from God. We're separated from the eternal life that God created us for. And there is absolutely nothing that we can do or give to secure eternal life and right standing with God. That's why if I stop and say, well, since this lady gave a lot and impressed Jesus, you should go give a lot. That just creates more Pharisees. If it doesn't start with people that have offered themselves to Jesus all in and received everything that he has for us. Following Jesus doesn't begin with a list of rules to obey or amounts to give. It begins with a free gift to be received. And it's one that requires humility because it re requires us owning that we can't save ourselves. That I can't do enough to balance out the eternal scales. It's not just about doing, it's about receiving. Can we soften our lights a little bit? I've been praying about this morning and about what this means for us. And you know, a few weeks ago, I shared my own faith story, and I shared how I grew up uh, in very Christian circles. I grew up in a Christian family, attending church my whole life. I went to a private Christian school. I was immersed. My, my whole world was revolved around church. And so I was 
but I was not surrendered to Jesus. I was what I would, I would call a, a theist. I believed in God. I actually believed, and I knew quite a bit of scripture for, you know, for a kid. <laughs> but I wasn't surrendered to him. I, and for me, it was two reasons. One was fear. I feared that if I gave my life to God, he would ask me to do something I didn't want to do. And it was also because I wanted to stay in control of my own life. And so fear and control kept me from doing that. And, and finally, when I was 18 or 19, I surrendered my life to God. When he, he awakened my heart, something happened where I suddenly found my heart warming to him and the things that I had resisted, I suddenly wanted to do. I believe that there are people, either listening on the live stream, people here in the room today, who uh, you might be a theist. You might be somebody who believes in God, believes in Jesus. Uh, you might be going around doing the activities of religion. I mean, think about that day in the temple. There was people that were gathered in the temple and they were, they were doing religious activities. They were gathering to celebrate Passover. They were going through the routines. They were giving their offerings. But some of them weren't doing it for the right reasons. And it was this one person who said, I'm all in. I'm going to entrust my whole life to you. That's who had the encounter with Jesus. I think I just want to give you a clear invitation that there's more for you than just going through the motions of giving and going through religious activities and going through our routines. There's something about giving our whole life to Jesus and receiving everything that he has. It's an incredible exchange. We don't get cheated. I've never regretted that day when I was, I think I was 18 or 19. I don't remember which age I was, but I, was, I, was, I know where I was. I was driving to McCall and I was in my truck and God, I had an encounter where God just, he, he warmed my heart. That was the Holy Spirit's activity drawing me to him. I think some of you may have the Holy Spirit drawing you right now. And it may be that, that you've never responded to Jesus, that you've, you've, you're a theist, and, you, and you're, that's probably why you're here. But have you ever surrendered your life to Jesus and said, God, I know that what you did on the cross, you did not just for mankind, you did it for me. And I want to receive your death on my behalf in faith, and I want to receive your resurrection. I want your resurrection life beginning now and stretching into eternity. I want that. I think there's some who've never done that. I also think there's some who've, you, you, you may have prayed a prayer like that at one point, but you've been running for a while. And, and you know that your life isn't all in for Jesus. You might give him parts. You might give, give him from the margins. To use the language of our story this morning, you may be giving him something from the margins of your life, but he doesn't have your whole life. You know very well that you're in control of your life and there's parts that you've withheld from him. And maybe there's a stirring in your heart today, the Holy Spirit saying, would you give me everything? all that you have to live on. And here's what'll happen. When we do that, God places his Holy Spirit inside of our hearts. Um, God has promised that he will come and make his home with us. And he begins turning. So, so you, the, there's a transformation that happens now and it stretches into eternity. We offer him everything. Not everything changes at once. We couldn't handle that. The process of sanctification and transformation happens as we open our hearts to Jesus. And then we continue to learn how to live from him. That's, that's why we come together every week as a church, because we're learning how to live our lives like Jesus would if he were us. We're learning how to, to, to worship him with our lives, to become more like him, how to carry his presence into the world faithfully. And so this morning, I just want to invite you to respond to that. Here's what that's going to look like. It's going to look like two things. One, if you would like to respond and say, Jesus, I'm all in. I'm giving you all that I have. My, my tulipta is my life. And, and I just want to give it to you and, and trust that you will do with it what you will. <laughs> or you're responding, you, need to, you know it's time to come back to Jesus. If that's, if, if, if that's you, I'm going to ask you to just stand up in a moment. We're just going to pray for you right where you are. You have to come down here. Um, if you're online, you can respond in, depending on which platform you're using, you can respond in the chat box. You can also send a prayer to prayer at vineyardboys.org and, um, and we'll call you and pray for you by name. But um, you have to give us your phone number if you do that. But secondly, so, there, so I'm just going to 
ask you to stand right where you are and I'm gonna lead you in a prayer. Um, and if you pray that prayer from your heart, sincerely, you can pray it out loud, you can pray it silently, doesn't matter. It's between you and God, but it's in the public arena of his family. We're in corner of his pasture just gathering together. If that's you, you can stand. And then, and then I want to offer you an opportunity. On December 12th, which is like maybe four weeks from now, we're going to have a baptism right here during our Sunday gathering. We're going to put out our, we've got a portable baptismal pool. We're going to pull it right here. And we're going to offer people the opportunity for baptism. And so if you're responding today, again, on campus or online, you can go to our, our website, vineyardboys.org, just type in slash baptism. And it's going to pull up a page that's dedicated to baptism. It's going to have a PDF that you can download that, that just walks through all the key scriptures about baptism. It's going to have a video that, that explains baptism in a really effective, powerful way. And it's going to have a sign-up where you can actually sign up and say, I want to be baptized on the 12th. And this is a way to publicly respond. And it, it symbolizes, like one of the things that it symbolizes is that you're dying to yourself and you're being resurrected with Jesus' life. That's, that's going, that's the immersion, it's the coming up. It's participating in his death and resurrection, receiving his death and resurrection. So you can also just find it on our website. There's a banner across the top of our website that you can just click on that if you just go to our homepage. But those are the two responses this morning. So I'm gonna ask you to close your eyes. And uh, if you're experiencing that, something in your heart today that's saying it's time, it's time to go all in for Jesus. I'm just going to ask you to stand where you are. Or maybe you're, you've been running for a while and you know it's time to re-surrender your life to Jesus. I'm just going to ask you to stand right where you are. All around the room. Amen. I had a friend ask me the question. I shared my testimony a few weeks back about being a theist and having never surrendered. We were just dialoguing about what does it mean? And I said, you know, I recognize that even in my surrender, there's parts of my life I've held on to. I like the prayer of the, 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 the father who prayed to Jesus and he said, I believe, help my unbelief. Here's one of my prayers. I surrender, help my resistance. Would you give me the grace to surrender the parts of my life that I've, not, that I've not given to you? The parts that I keep taking back. The control, the fear, the appetites. Give you one last chance, and then we're going to pray. Anybody else? Here's what I want to ask. If you're part of our ministry team, part of our prayer team, part of our School of Kingdom ministry, would you just look around and see people that are standing? And I'm just going to ask you to go put your hand on their shoulder. There's something powerful about us affirming what God's doing. If you're standing right now, understand this. The people that are sitting, it's because we've already done this. We've stood up in moments like this in some sort of way where we've surrendered to God and said, God, I'm all in. So I'm going to pray. If you just agree in your heart with this or you can agree out loud, but if you mean this from your heart, the Holy Spirit is going to take hold of you in just a fresh and new way today. Holy Spirit, Lord Jesus, thank you that you gave your life for us, that you went all in, that you gave all that you had, all that you had to live on. And that you did that because there was no other way for us to be reconciled to you, to be reconciled to the, the life that you created us for. And so Lord, for these that are standing today and, and surrendering their life to you, Lord, I ask for the grace to receive this eternal life that you offer, that you won, resurrection life that you won on the cross. Would you speak that into their lives right now? As you spoke all of creation into existence, would you speak new creation life into them? And Holy Spirit, would you make your home 
in each one. And you've promised that you would, you would reorder our hearts, that you would make your home in us, that you would take hearts of stone and make them hearts of flesh and that you would cleanse us from every uncleanness. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would free these from not only the penalty and the guilt of sin, but from the power of sin. I pray for a new freedom to respond to you with, with, uh, with greater abandon, with greater trust, with greater obedience. And Lord, as we anticipate this, this, uh, this baptism coming up on the 12th, Lord, uh, we ask for new life that we can celebrate together. We, we celebrate these lives. And we pray that you would continue to do the good work you've begun in us. We ask all these things for your glory. We ask it for our joy and our abundant life. And we ask it for the sake of our world, for our community. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, can we celebrate that? That's a new life. That baptism isn't just for people who responded today. It's for anybody. And so if you want to respond in baptism, you, that page is there for you, whether you're online or on campus. Um, we, have a, we do have a, a ministry team that's going to be available right up front today uh, that can pray with you. And we believe that God is at work. We may have some words for prayer. Uh, in fact, here's some words for prayer we have this morning. These are words that, that our team sensed uniquely for this morning. And so if you see yourself there or you came with needs that you'd like prayer for, if you just want to come up front, we have... Uh, ministry team. It's our School of Kingdom ministry and our, our prayer team would be glad to come pray with you. Apart from that, go what? Make the invisible God visible. Amen. Thanks for listening. To respond or receive prayer after the live stream closes, please email prayer at vineyardboise.org. And if possible, include your phone number. We'd love to get in touch with you. Thanks.